0: Just as I was coming in here, I thought about how um, the fact that I'm giving the talk tonight may for some of you be Sankara Dukkha, because if you thought you'd figured out the talk schedule, um, (laughs) it's supposed to be Aaron tonight, and instead you got the Dukkha lady, uh, (laughs) and one of the um, kind of... Uh, insights around Sankara Dukkha is that this world is very unpredictable and it's uncontrollable. And you can't do anything about the fact that you got the Dukkha lady tonight. (laughs) We really are on an incredible journey together. And I often think it's, um, and it is, I often think of it as, and it is, the journey of of mystics. It's a journey that um, mystics have been taking for centuries. You all are mystics here. Because we are looking deeply into the nature of this world, what it is, how it works, and deeply into ourselves to try to understand how to find the highest, uh, connect with the highest kind of happiness. That's the journey of mystics. And we're doing it in the 21st century. That's pretty cool. It's not exactly the century of the mystics. And as um, all the mystics warn, are just about all of them, um, it's not an easy path. The path of a mystic is not an easy path. even though we hear this and we secretly hope that we will be the exception, that we won't have to pay any price on our journey towards truth. Most of you have probably been disabused of this notion by now, after your time here. Somebody named Paul Oster said, People say you have to travel to see the world. Sometimes I think that if you just stay in one place and keep your eyes open, you're going to see just about all of that you can handle. <laughs> when I was young, I traveled the world a lot. Before I was 24 and wound up here on my first retreat, I was my identity was an international traveler. I lived in a bunch of countries and did a lot of different things abroad. Um, And after I found this path, I actually quit traveling because really all I needed to do was sit down. And there was plenty of journeying to be had right here in this heart, body, and mind. Plenty of fascinating uh, worlds to visit. So on this journey, this journey that uh, is challenging... I've been thinking about the qualities of heart and mind that are needed to endure the rigors of the spiritual path. One thing I would say is that we need a heart and a mind that are strong because reality is intense. And we also need a heart and mind that are flexible and malleable because of the truth of this reality that it's always changing. So the heart needs to be flexible in order to be able to respond. And then we need this heart-mind with the flavor of kindness and compassion in order to face the huge amount of suffering in an individual life in, in this world. So we need a mind and heart that's both strong and yet also gentle, kind, and flexible in order to be present, to connect with truth. Strength without gentleness winds up being brittle, inflexible, easy to break. Gentleness without strength lacks the backbone to do the job. So we need both. And as we dive deep into human existence and exploring these levels of suffering, exploring what it means to have taken birth as a human being, we see that we need a lot of strength to navigate these waters. So part of our practice is developing this Heart, mind, that can connect with reality. And we may think that meditation is mostly about being in deep states of bliss, meditative bliss, but a huge part of practice is strengthening the wholesome qualities of heart and mind. Unfortunately, there are um, a number of these qualities that we can touch into and strengthen in order to support the fortitude that we need. One of the classic classical lists in Buddhism is the Ten Perfections, the Ten Paramis. Most of you know the list. I'll mention them later. It's said that when the Buddha wanted to, um, when he made the vow many eons ago, when he was a bodhisattva and made the vow to, to be a fully awakened Buddha, that part of the process of this vow is that he had to develop these 10 qualities to absolute perfection. And it said that he spent four incalculable eons and 100,000 ages developing these qualities, which I always get a kick out of. I think the point is you can't get your mind around it <laughs> a long time. And he needed these qualities to wake up fully, just as we need these qualities. Generosity, renunciation, patience, equanimity, determination, to mention a few. The famous Upandita, when people's practice seemed to stagnate, he would tell them to leave retreat and go out and strengthen paramis. That's how important they are, these qualities. They allow us to go deeper into the truth, and they build our confidence that we can do so. They build our confidence that we can meet this life with an open heart and mind, rather than one that is defended against this wild, wild world. It can be helpful to recognize which of these paramis are our strengths so we can rely on them as a support for our practice. And it can be helpful to know which ones we may want to strengthen, which ones are not so strong, and that may be a support to our practice to strengthen. And in case you're despairing at this point of the retreat that you didn't get what you came for, that you haven't been struck by a lightning bolt of enlightenment or um, ascended to the heavens on silver and golden clouds, (laughs) please know that being here on retreat, you have been strengthening these paramis. Even if you don't see it, just the fact that you're still here shows that you're strengthening these paramis. And you can have a healthy appreciation of that. We were talking the other day about the difference between uh, superiority mana and having a healthy appreciation of, of our, our strengths and, um, and wholesome qualities. So uh, superiority conceit, um, it has a certain kind of stinginess to it. It's like, I'm like this and you're not. <laughs> uh, that's not so helpful. A wholesome appreciation of our strengths is um, open-hearted. It doesn't have that sense of separation or stinginess. It's it's um, happy to share. And this healthy um, appreciation of our strengths gives us confidence for the path. So it can be very useful. And I was thinking about the paramis and I was thinking about how we can group them perhaps into ones that are strengthening and ones that are gentling. As I said, we need these two sides of the heart and mind. I'm kind of going to do that, but it's, you, you, they all do both in some ways, so it's, a, it's perhaps a, um, not an exact science here. I think of some of the strengthening paramis. Um, as determination, effort, ethics, renunciation, determination, that, that um, resolve to keep doing, going, that resolve to come into the hall. Sometimes you have to call on determination just to make it into the hall, right? So you're strengthening that effort. We've all made incredible amounts of effort, right? Renunciation, restraint, seeing that we don't have to be run by our desires, that creates strength in the heart and the mind. And the gentling ones of metta, generosity, patience, Many of us need a lot of gentling. I know in my early practice I came strong in determination, but metta was not one of my strengths. I needed to develop metta in order to have that balance of strength of mind and gentleness of heart. We also develop wisdom and truthfulness and equanimity, these ten paramis. So fortified with the strength and the gentleness of heart and mind of these qualities that we've been developing, these paramis, we can continue our exploration into dukkha, the third kind of dukkha today, Sankara dukkha, We had the first uh, kind of dukkha. We talked about dukkha dukkha, the dukkha of unpleasantness, unpleasant experiences, sense experiences, experiences of heart, body, and mind, and how to relate to these in a way that uh, frees the heart, non-clinging, working with the aversion that arises and, and increasing the equanimity and ability to meet unpleasantness, to rest in it. And the second kind of dukkha, anicca dukkha, the dukkha due to change. That while pleasant experiences provide us some solace and um, comfort in life, that we can't rely on them for our ultimate refuge because they change. So how do we work with pleasant sense experience? How to, do we work with the attachment that arises? How do we learn to let go, let be, to fully experience pleasantness and to let it go, to let go of the attachment when it changes? Well, let go of the attachment before it changes, to let go of the attachment. <laughs> and then Sankara Dukkha. This one is the most subtle the most pervasive, and the most existential. It's the dukkha or the suffering due to having taken birth with this human heart, mind, body. And it's sometimes called suffering due to conditioned formations. What does that mean? (laughs) That refers to the stressful nature of all formations of existence, are all-conditioned phenomena, or everything that uh, we know in this world, all experience of mind, body, physical reality. The stressful nature of all of that because of um, the continual uh, coming together of conditions and falling apart of conditions, so the continual arising and passing away of all things, and the fact that, um, that we're contingent beings, meaning that uh, we can't isolate ourselves as independently existing beings and then protect this independent, ex- independently existing being, that this being is actually contingent, that it's um, the arising and passing away, the continual arising and passing away of conditions coming together and dissolving. So what we are is... Um, we, see, it gets hard to talk about it because what we are doesn't even make sense when we get into Sankara Dukkha, but we're going to have to use conventional talk here. Um, so what we are is um, <laughs> the interaction of many causes and conditions coming together. We don't exist independently. So there's a certain instability in that, uncontrollability, unpredictability, a constant ending and reforming. So we have this um, root misperception as human beings that this coming together of conditions is an independent entity, that I, Rebecca, am an independent entity. So we take ourselves as a self-existing independent entity. We identify with one or more of the constituents of experience. So we identify with body or feelings or perceptions, mind states or consciousness. Some of you will recognize that as the five aggregates. So we identify with these as me, myself, in some enduring way. And then out of this comes our need to defend, protect, fortify, and manage this mind-body-heart process. When we identify with these constituents as me or mine, when we own them, so to speak, we see that this leads to trouble. Because they're always changing, we got, um, we got an issue here, how to manage them. And then we experience this existential dukkha, this existential dilemma trying to manage what we think is an independently existing entity, but that is really um, causes and conditions coming together and falling apart repeatedly, we experience this dilemma as um, unnerving, frustrating, fearful, dissatisfying, and stressful. That's Sankara Dukkha. Also, given the nature of this reality, there's really no solid place that we can stand. There is no ultimate place in this world of refuge and security because we can't peg it down. It's wild. It's uncontrollable. It's a wild, wild world. And as the noticing per minutes goes up, the NPM, Joseph's NPM, as that increases, we see this more and more clearly. We're not very pleased about this, right? How many of you are pleased with what I just said? <laughs> it's kind of challenging. It really points to um, kind of the most existential dilemma and challenge of being human. We don't want to hear this. We want to hear that there's somewhere that we can land that's perfect, that's going to get it all together. We just haven't figured out what it is yet. It's kind of like that um, story I told of my first retreat when I was 24. I could have told that story for this talk just the same, where I was like, where am I going to find happiness? What is going to do it? And looking and looking and looking, assuming that there was going to be some conditions some coming together of conditions that I could find that was going to permanently do it and make me happy. So sometimes sankara dukkha is this pervasive sense of unsatisfactoriness. This sense that there's something missing that we could, if we just found it, find the answer. Joseph uh, talked about another aspect with them. Um, uh, some of us were talking the other day about Sankara Dukkha, as you can hear. We like to sit and talk about uh, the Dharma. It's one of the best things about teaching this retreat. Um, so Joseph summarized Sankara Dukkha without doing anything, your house or apartment gets dirty. <laughs> <laughs> And what it, this is another aspect of dukkha. It's a sense because things are contingent and they're coming together and falling apart, um, that, it's, that the nature of things is towards entropy. It's towards disorder, right? You don't do anything in your house or apartment, it gets dirty. And what we see is that it takes a lot of work to keep this body and heart and mind all together like we think it should be and functioning fairly well. And sometimes on retreat we'll relate to that, relate to how much work and maintenance it takes to keep this body going. I remember on my early retreats I um, was um, practicing in the Upandita style, um, Mahasi style. And so you, you move slowly and you note everything. So um, I just remember it be just like, oh, do I have to brush my teeth? <laughs> because it's like such an ordeal <laughs> to um, you know, to reach and to open <laughs> and to push <laughs> and to brushing, brushing, tasting. Um, and <laughs> in some ways that was just highlighting Sankara dukkha. That that's always there we have to feed this body, we have to clean it, we have to bathe it, we have to rest it, we have to exercise it. It's more work than having a pet dog. <laughs> it's more work than having five pet dogs. It's a lot of work. I was thinking it's more work than having five dogs or ten cats. Cook's cats aren't as much work. And then later we'll talk about the, um, the dukkha of keeping this self together, which is a whole other story. So dukkha, uh, Sankara dukkha highlights that we have this constant impact on the sense doors, constant impingement on the sense doors. And then we have the corresponding movement of heart and mind. That's what it means to be contingent. So we hear a sound, and then, um, so there's impingement on um, the ear door, right? We hear a sound, and then there's all the things we do with it. That's Sankara dukkha, that this just keeps happening. And it's kind of tiring, a couple of yogis today mentioned that, that it's just, it gets a little wearying after a while. And some of you three-monthers, I've noticed, are getting a little um, weary, perhaps. <laughs> you six-weekers are, no, you're still on the uphill, you know. You you haven't been here as long, but some of the three-monthers are, um, the energy's flagging a little bit. And I wonder if that's partly why that we're connecting with Sankara Dukkha kind of the the relentlessness of the impingement on the sense doors and the reactions of the heart and mind that come from that. So if you are, if you're one of those three-monthers whose energy is flagging a little bit, it can be really important to um, figure out what helps you to recommit your energy it's too early <laughs> to start thinking about the end. It's a long ways off still. And um, if you start going there, you'll actually get really restless. So it's really helpful to find like what helps you to recommit and to really um, keep going. Keep investigating. Keep taking advantage of this amazing opportunity that we have here. So, Sankara dukkha, just um, the sense impingement and um, the, all the uh, corresponding or um, unfolding movement of heart and mind. And sometimes you can just think about what you go through on a day here. Sometimes retreats just like being on a roller coaster, right? Maybe we could think of Sankara dukkha like being on a roller coaster ride that goes on and on. I mentioned that um, some people talk about uh, dukkha-dukkha being related to unpleasant Vedana, um, anicca-dukkha related to pleasant Vedana, and sankhara-dukkha related to neutral Vedana. And um, some of this... um, the way that this is meant is that um, with um, Sankara Dukkha, we have this um, ongoing sense impingement on this organism. Pleasant, unpleasant, even neutral, is experienced as somewhat um, oppressive just due to the relentlessness. that it just keeps going on and on. But as this world weariness grows, and it's actually considered a, a kind of wholesome state of mind in Buddhism, not despair—that's different. <laughs> but this world weariness grows; it um, fuels our wish for freedom. It fuels our yearning for release from dukkha. So we could say that connecting with dukkha is, is fuel for our practice for our motivation to be free. So thinking more about contingency, our embeddedness in this world, due to the fact that we, in quotes, are made of this world of causes and conditions coming together and that we can't separate ourselves out, and be completely um, safe and protected from our environment. And yet we have these um, body, hearts, and minds that respond to the environment um, over and over again due to the sense impingement, right? So the other day I was thinking about this. On Tuesday I was riding my bike, and um, I like to think about Dharma talks when I'm exercising. (laughs) And this leaf got stuck in the wheel, and... um, but I didn't know that that's what happened. All I know, knew was that I heard a sound, and um, I saw my nervous system ratchet up. It's like, what is that sound, and is it dangerous? That was like what the nervous system does, right? So that's part of Sankara Dukkha is that we have these nervous systems that, go, that respond continually to sense um, impingement over and over again. Then I got a flat tire, which might be more like um, <laughs> uh, without you doing anything, your apartment gets dirty. <laughs> but I just named it Sankara Dukkha. It helps so much sometimes for me to just name it Sankara Dukkha because it breaks the, um, the idea that we may have that there's something wrong here. That we should be able to control things more. That we should be able to find some kind of perfect conditions. That we should be able to make everything all right all the time. We have this kind of secret belief that that should be true. And so if we name it Sankara Dukkha, and I did with the with the leaf with the flat tires like, oh Sankara Dukkha. It's like, oh, this is just the way the world is. We can stop blaming conditions. We can stop trying to make things perfect. And we can look within to see what can be done with this world as it is. We can focus on how to develop the heart and mind that relates to this truth in a wholesome way, in a way that leads to freedom. And that doesn't mean that we don't fix a flat tire. On a relative reality level, we still uh, do what we need to improve our lives, to alleviate suffering. But we also work on this level, this level of how do we make peace with the way things are. This year, as I'm teaching the um, six weeks here, they're logging the lot next door to my house. They informed us a number of months ago that they were going to do this. And they started uh, my first Monday here, which I considered pretty good fortune, because I'm not there most of the time. (laughs) But usually on my days off, um, I'll go home, because I live just about an hour from here. And I had this thought, well, if they're logging on Wednesdays, when I usually go home and it's um, loud, I I can stay here instead at my quiet house here on uh, near the pond. So what happened? Well, last week they were logging behind my house here. (laughs) Ha ha! Sankara (laughs) dukkha! You can't get it perfect. (laughs) We can't get it perfect. And we can't avoid the contingency. We can't somehow separate ourselves out from the environment and feel safe and um, secure in that way. Let's look a little bit more at our conditioning in face of this um, continual uh, sense impingement. So when we have these sense experiences that arise in this body, heart, and mind, Sense experiences, hearing, smelling, tasting, seeing, feelings in the body, or uh, you know, sensations in the body, um, thoughts, emotions. When we have these um, experiences of mind and body, and when we identify with them, meaning that we own them or take them to be um, ours in some kind of enduring way then we feel that we have to protect and manage and control experience. Our usual strategies to control um, experience are grasping, aversion, and delusion, the three roots of suffering. We all do all three. We often have our preferred strategy, the one that we go to first. But these are all strategies that we use to protect the self and to disconnect from reality. So with grasping, we give ourselves the illusion that we can make pleasant stay. And with aversion, we give ourselves the illusion that we can make the unpleasant go away. And with delusion, we space out so that we don't really connect with the human situation. These are our protective strategies, our ways of protecting this very sensitive heart, body and mind. But unfortunately, these strategies, although they give us some illusion of control, they harden the heart and the mind. You've all seen that. So what are we to do with this wishing to protect this self and the steep price of the hardening of heart and mind when we use our usual strategies of Greed hatred and delusion. This is our human predicament. This is what we're trying to understand here on retreat. The truth with Sankara dukkha is that because we are exquisitely sensitive beings, we can feel quite vulnerable in the face of this wild and uncontrollable world. But vulnerable also means that we're easily touched by life. And many of us notice on retreat um, um, this increase in sensitivity because we're actually present more and because our usual defenses of greed Ill will and delusion are actually, um, they're a little bit more transparent, not so opaque, <laughs> a little bit less present. And so, what we find is that we become um, more sensitive. Most of you have probably noticed this in different ways. Sometimes it's in beautiful ways, in that um, we see the, the sunset, the long, slow sunsets, and the colors are just astounding to us or the taste of food is so um, rich and varied through a whole bite of food. Sometimes, however, it's the other way. (laughs) Sometimes it's very intense, this sensitivity. Practice is most intense when this sensitivity um, overtakes Equanimity overtakes the ability of the heart and mind to, um, to meet uh, the sense contact without reactivity or with openness. So we have these periods of practice. Sometimes you'll experience them where you're more sensitive than usual, but you're just reactive because the mind and heart aren't used to that level of sensitivity. And then um, we develop um, equanimity. Those are the periods of path where, uh, where practice where we feel more peace, that the equanimity is keeping up with the sensitivity. Sometimes if we're too sensitive and the equanimity isn't there, we back off a little bit from practice, from formal practice, especially to give the heart and the mind time to um, adjust, to balance, to come back to a deeper balance. So sometimes on retreat, um, this sensitivity will manifest as what we call yogi mind. So for example, you're sitting in your room, you're in blissful samadhi, and someone down the hall closes their door loudly, and you freak out. You have to restrain yourself not to go out there and strangle them for having done that. I'm not the only one who's had that experience, am I? (laughs) I'm an aversive type, maybe that helps explain that. (laughs) So yes, the noise was unpleasant, and our samadhi was um, disturbed, but I often think that the bigger issue is the contingency, that we can't control this other yogi. We can't control the sense impingement. Sometimes it can feel like... um, our self is violated at, the, at those times. Like they did it just to bother me, which is crazy because, right, they're all, they're all the way down the hall, they're not thinking of us at all, but sometimes that kind of thought will go through the mind if we pay close attention. And then we think, if I could just get that yogi to quit shutting their door so loudly, then everything would be okay. but there isn't a perfect condition, right? If I could just, that Sankara dukkha, that that, um, if I could just get it this way. I know one teacher who in her early practice, she was staying over in what's now the Bodhi House. Um, Before it was different than it is now. And uh, she couldn't stand the sound of the heating system. It started to drive her nuts. So she turned off the heat. It was December. She turned off the heat in the whole building. (laughs) And the next morning, you know, she realized what she had done when the yogis were walking around with their winter coats on. (laughs) That's how sensitive we can get, yogi mind. Or you see a note on the board and your mind goes wild for hours, right? So sensitive. Or I remember my first retreat here. I went to um, the doctor about two months into the retreat. I still remember the two songs playing on the radio in the waiting room. <laughs> I won't tell you what they are because they, <laughs> they were pretty bad. Um, so sensitive. And some of you probably have these songs going through your heads, right? Over and over again. That's Sankara Dukkha, like you can't control that, right? So since we find the um, uncontrollability of this constant impingement so uncomfortable, we try to range our environment so that we don't feel vulnerable. As teachers get many helpful notes about what can be improved in the environment here. (laughs) (laughs) And when we're feeling really out of control, we might write helpful notes to other yogis about how they can improve the environment here. (laughs) I've even written a helpful note myself, my first retreat. I do not think I did one since then. Um, but I was, like, I couldn't, I, I was out of control. There was a yogi behind me, and he was snoring some of the sittings. So I wrote him a helpful note. <laughs> 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 that maybe he should take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> hmm. it's not a good idea to write helpful notes to other yogis. You can write them to us as long as you sign them. We can't promise we'll answer them. Um, or even that conditions will change. Um, but it's true right now, especially deep into retreat, um, we're all so sensitive, as I said, that sensitivity increases. So writing notes to other yogis can be hugely impactful for a long time. Um, even other ways that we tried to be helpful, kind ways. My note was not kind. Um, but I mean, it was on the surface, it was kind, but it wasn't really. Um, but even other ways that we might be helpful um, to yogis, other yogis, fellow yogis, even though the motivation may be kindness and generosity. I, I just encourage you to give each other lots of space and really respect um, each other's boundaries and space. I think it, um, yeah, it just helps, uh, helps each other. It's a gift that we give each other. So Sankara dukkha and the corresponding wish for control Um, Improving the environment because the vulnerability, it's the vulnerability that um, we find so challenging. So, part of Sankara Dukkha is um, part of working with Sankara Dukkha is becoming um, comfortable with our vulnerability as human beings, with our sensitivity, our vulnerability. It's actually I'll talk about the more beautiful side of that vulnerability a little later. Eric Fromm, um, I think he was a psychologist from Germany, but I'm not sure. Eric. (laughs) The task we must set for ourselves is not to feel secured, but to be able to tolerate insecurity. So my way of saying it is that we we increase our ability to be vulnerable. And we learn to make friends with uncertainty, because this is part of Sankara Dukkha too, is that anything can happen. The unpredictability, the uncontrollability. Uncertainty is a really fascinating place to explore. What we see is that when we meet uncertainty with resistance, it brings up a huge amount of fear. We so want security. But when we meet uncertainty with an open heart, there is this incredible sparkling freshness to life, an openness into mystery. So the other thing I want to talk about with Sankara Dukkha is um, I talked about the body and kind of the incredible um, amount of work it takes to maintain the body. Well, what about the incredible amount of work that it takes to maintain the cohesive sense of self? Right? We've fabricated this fixed sense of ourselves and then moment by moment we have to construct it and reconstruct it over and over again to try to um, uh, keep some cohesiveness to something that's not um, that's always changing. It's like it always needs shoring up because conditions are always changing. So sometimes we can um, see this in the stories that we tell ourselves, right? These stories that we tell ourselves over and over again to shore up a sense of me and mine and how I can protect me and mine. Sometimes they're wild dramas, right, that go on and on with us starring in the central role. <laughs> the planning and the rehashing. Sometimes it's subtler. The experience of what I call the sportscaster, that um, voice in the background that's narrating what we're doing. Now she's doing this, now she's doing that. <laughs> it's all like i got to keep it all together in a, in a continual narrative. And then what about the, um, um, the whole self-image stuff and, the, and what the self-image that we try to maintain with this sense of self? And what we do when dissonant information comes in? We don't like dissonance. The mind wants um, cohesion and security. So there's an incredible amount of energy that goes into um, filtering what we let through into consciousness and what we don't. It takes an enormous amount of um, effort and energy to do that. And as you sit here, as we sit, we relax and we relax more and more and we actually see more and more of what's going on in this heart and body and mind because um, we're not expending all that energy and repression, you could say, getting rid of it. I know that as I started meditating, and the more I meditated, the more mean thoughts I had. <laughs> it wasn't that I had more mean thoughts. It's that I was able to allow uh, those thoughts to come into my awareness. But what did change, or what does change, is that we start to, and, and this is part of what allows um us to see all of this more clearly is that we start taking it less personally. So we start to identify less with it. We start um, pegging that, that the contents of our thoughts and minds are who and what we are. We start to understand that it's conditions coming together and falling apart. There's sense impingement, and then there's what the mind does with it. At lunch today, uh, we were sitting in the staff dining room, and uh, the sense impingement that arose was a was a cake over (laughs) seeing a cake over on the counter and um, it was pretty funny because several of us found that greed uh, um, arose from that sense impingement right seeing the cake and hearing about the cake I think Aaron had a piece and pointed out that she had a piece. And, and <laughs> a couple of us looked over there. And so I looked over there, and I noticed that there wasn't a lot of cake left. <laughs> and so the mind starts thinking about, well, how can I get one of those cakes, pieces of cake, without appearing greedy? <laughs> right? So this is like the shoring up self-image. It's work, right? So it's like, huh, now if I go get cake before I finish eating my meal... Then it's going to be obvious that you know I'm worried about the cake ending and being gone and not getting any. So we're we're watching um, the mind. Bonnie's Bonnie and I are having this conversation a little bit about what's going on, and then um, <laughs> so then one of the staff members says to Bonnie, "Do you want me to get you a piece of cake?" And Bonnie says yes, and I say, "You could get me a piece too." <laughs> Very casually, of course. (laughs) And so then um, we get you to get our piece of cake. (laughs) And then Joseph's sitting next to me, and he starts eyeing the pieces of cake. And um, finally he says, Okay, I'm going to get some cake. He goes, I've been watching greed. Like, come up and and go away and come up and go away, but I'm going to go get some cake. So... um, (laughs) I think um, we don't need to measure the strength of our practice by whether we got cake or not. <laughs> um, I would measure the strength of our practice, if I'm able to, by how much fun we had with that whole process. We laughed. We laughed, you know? We put it right out there and we laughed because we weren't so identified with it. I mean, the greed did, you know, went a little bit, right? We did all get our cake, but, um, but the shoring up of the self-image and all of that, we just thought it was funny. This is one of the fruits of practice. We start um, to find our own minds more humorous, a little less Problematic. We don't take it so seriously. We don't take it as me or mine. It's just sense impingement and what the mind does with it. Oh, see a cake. Go greed. Want greed. Don't want to look greedy. (laughs) How do I get the cake and not look greedy? Yeah, just the unfolding. (laughs) And because of this... um, need to uh, construct and reconstruct the self over and over again to shore it up, Um, we mistrust the quiet. Because what if the self falls apart? What if what we're working so hard to maintain winds up having little cracks in it? A number of years ago, I had this practice where I, I like to walk in the woods a lot, and uh, I would find myself um, thinking. And when I would come out of thinking, I would ask myself, Why think? You know, I was curious, Why think? It's beautiful in the woods. Why? Why would I choose to be lost in some thoughts, right? And the answer that um, would come back over and over again was, So I can exist. So I exist. So we see how these stories that we tell ourselves over and over again are the shoring up of this self. I'm going to run out of time. I didn't think that was going to happen. Sankara (laughs) Dukkha. Judy Leaf uh, says, we have taken a tiny speck of the vastness of the universe and staked it out as our territory, and now we are stuck with protecting it from change. That's creating the self. But as we practice more and we notice identification, we notice the clinging to these experiences of body and mind, and, um, and the identification begins to lessen, We become more comfortable with this groundlessness of life and we actually begin to experience it as spaciousness and freedom. And we see that the world doesn't fall apart if we don't continually try to keep it together. Larry Eisenberg said, For peace of mind, resign as general manager of the universe. That's what we do. We resign as general manager of the universe and we let go and let go and let go and enjoy the ride. And as we take experience less personally, with less resistance, less holding on, less identification, we need less protection from this vulnerability. It's the identifying with these processes of heart, body, and mind that um, causes us to believe that we need to protect ourselves. We find that um, we can be touched by life And that in this um, exquisite vulnerability, there's a deep connection to life. That's where the aliveness is, is right there in that vulnerability, that tender place. in that exquisitely sensitive relationship to life that's open, receptive, and fresh. I was reading um, an interview John Engler had in the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies Journal, and he was talking to Deepama, and he says, I said to Deepama once, very early on, that the outcome of practice sounded pretty dull and blah to me. Once you get rid of desire and aversion, where was the chutzpah? Where was the, the first time I read this, where was the pizza? (laughs) But it's actually, where was the pizzazz? (laughs) Where was the juice? Life would be pretty tepid and uninteresting if you didn't enjoy anything at all. To my surprise, she broke out laughing. No, she said, you don't understand. Life is so much more full of zest now now than it was before when I was carrying all that baggage around. That baggage is attachment clinging. Now every experience has its own taste. And then it passes and it's gone. And then the next experience has its own taste. And he writes, the conviction was not in her words, but in her spontaneous laughter at my question. Sometimes I think of this beautiful vulnerability it reminds me a little bit of the wood thrush's song. I don't know if you all know the song of the wood thrush, but it's a bird that sings here in the springtime, in the summer, in the woods. It just sings in the woods. Usually right around dusk, it sings a lot. And it's very lyrical. It's kind of like a flute. And it's kind of lyrical and haunting at the same time. It's like tender and beautiful, and fragile, and vulnerable, and so compelling. It turns out that the joy, perhaps, that we are looking for in our practice turns out to be a more sober joy than we had expected, but joy nonetheless. The joy of a heart and mind that can be at peace in spite of pain that can shine in spite of darkness, that can love in spite of loss. A durable, unconditional kind of joy. A joy where we can rest because it's connected with things as they are. And the deepest rest is the unconditioned. Sankara dukkha, the dukkha of conditioned formations, can fuel our um, yearning for the unconditioned. in the unconditioned, we experience the release from Sankara Dukkha. It's kind of like we fully understand Sankara Dukkha when we have an experience outside of it. It's like the uh, refrigerator hum. When the refrigerator's on and you're just used to it, you don't really hear it and experience the oppressiveness of it. But when you turn it off, then you're like, Oh, that was kind of oppressive. It's a little bit like that with Sankara Dukkha. And the way to the unconditioned is through non-clinging, right? We see that the self and all these experiences are rising and passing away and that trying to hold on over and over again fails. Non-clinging is our only hope for rest, rest from this stressfulness of fabrication. I think I'm going to tell you a little bear story to end. I have a thing with bears. I um, sometimes see them in the woods when I'm walking around. Sometimes I see them in our backyard. (laughs) Sometimes I see them stealing bird feeders in our backyard or trying to. So now a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I was sitting in my kitchen in the corner. So I had a chair in the corner like this. There's a window right here. I was sitting and um, I think I was reading something on my iPad. I heard some noise out in the yard. I kind of ignored it. Then I heard this scratching next to the house. So I turned to look, and right at the window, where I could touch right here, there was a bear with its snout on the, gl- on the glass, <laughs> like close enough that I could have touched it right through the window, right? And so when I turned to look at the bear, our eyes locked. And I saw deep into this bear's eyes, it was an old bear, and his eyes were old, and there was um, just this depth of suffering in his eyes. You could tell that he had been through so much. And yet there was also so much strength. You could tell that he had borne the suffering with strength, endurance. Then my conditioning as a mid-sized mammal as um, Aaron talks about it, I love that my conditioning as a mid-sized um, mammal meeting a larger mammal um, kicked in. So we only had this contact like for a minute. I mean, a minute? No, a second. I'm sorry, a minute would have been a long time. It was like a second, you know. And then I went ah and jumped up out of the chair. <laughs> There is something I learned from that bear's eyes, something about dukkha and suffering and um, enduring and bearing it that we can, that we do. And this rush of compassion that I felt for my bear friend and that I feel for all of us contingent beings in this world, contingent creatures that we all are, as contingent creatures who suffer and who find the strength to bear it, and even go beyond. Find the capacity to live with an open heart and mind. An open heart, mind of joy and love in this wild, uncontrollable world. And that's what I wish for you. Let's sit for a minute.